0: This is Mike Fader, and uh, coming up next is The Turning Point. And this is Mike Fader. We have a um, couple of guests today. Uh, before we get to our first guest, let me mention that uh, on my redesign website, there is a blog now, so that when I post articles, you can comment on them, and i like you to do that. Also, after you comment on them, uh, there's uh, an easy way to forward uh, the article to uh, your Facebook page and to... Um, And to any particular person you want to. And yes, indeed, you can tweet. (laughs) Further devolution of um, thought. All right. Our first guest is uh, David Vine, an associate professor of anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. And he's got a new book out uh, called Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Uh, Are you there?
1: I'm yeah, indeed. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on, um, uh, Mr. Vine or Associate Professor David.
1: David is good.
0: David is even the better. You can. <laughs> okay. okay, David has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Mother Jones, uh, among other publications, and as I say, his new his new um, book is Base Nation: How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World, and it's. Um, it's published as part of the American Empire Project, uh, and that's Metropolitan Books. Uh, his recent article on Tom Dispatch caught my eye, and it's something I think we should all know about. And we may know about it already, but we don't really know the details or the extent of it. It's called Doubling Down on a Failed Strategy, the Pentagon's Dangerous New Base Plan. Uh, first of all, what is, the, what is the base plan what is the pentagon 's base plan, and why is new in quotation marks
1: New is in quotation marks because there 's actually very little that 's actually new about this plan. The plan uh, basically leaked it seems to the New York Times back in December. Uh, the idea was that the, the Pentagon was going to integrate uh, Series of bases around the greater Greater Middle East, from Afghanistan and Iraq to uh, as far as Cameroon and, and elsewhere in the in the Middle East um, and Africa. As you can see, mm-hmm. uh, the Pentagon has been building bases in the Greater Middle East since 1980, uh, and has been building an especially large number since the invasion of Afghanistan in, in 2001 and when when the Pentagon started building bases in Afghanistan and then in Iraq during the uh, 2003 invasion and war, many were suspicious that that the Pentagon uh, had plans to keep these bases in basically perpetuity mm-hmm. in the region. Uh, those uh, accusations were consistently uh, denied by by the military. Um, they said they were they were simply temporary bases. Um, but what what we see here with this this newly, uh, it's not confirmed yet. Apparently, the Obama administration is is debating it. But but the the plan uh, pitched by the the Pentagon is that that they would keep bases in Afghanistan and and elsewhere in the region. Uh, for decades, likely uh, the the South Korea model has been uh, is what it's been described as. Uh, re- even more recently, uh, the, the the idea that the bases would be there for literally decades and decades, as they've been, you know, for more than sixty years in, in South Korea.
0: Is there any reason for any American <clears throat> who's paying attention? to believe that they wouldn't do this. In other words, w- where would we ever get the idea? I mean, you know, forget about the word cynical. I don't know if that's even use, useful when I'm talking about the government anymore. But, I mean, is there any reason for us to believe that the Pentagon, a military-industrial complex, whatever, all of whom are making a tremendous amount of money getting promotions, uh, promoting American uh, empire overseas, why would we ever have thought that they wouldn't be doing this? I mean, is that a convoluted question? <laughs>
1: It's not. Uh, I, I guess the only reason we would we would uh, we would uh, think they wouldn't is if we took them at their word and believed that you know everything the military tells us is is true. So when did they um, tell when, us that
0: they were? I mean, when <laughs> when did the Pentagon ever seem to want? There was a, probably a time when the Pentagon wanted to uh, not to have bases everywhere. Was there a time in the last 30 years?
1: Not in the last 30 years, but um, prior to World War II, the United States, generally speaking, did not maintain large numbers of, of bases outside oh. the United States. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. After World War I, the, all the bases were in Europe were, were closed and troops were brought home. Uh, it's really a, a phenomenon of the post-World War II era that, that the United States, as, as my book describes, has become a, a base nation, a, a nation defined by this Huge network of now around 800 bases outside the 50 states in Washington D.C. Uh, and and the buildup in the Persian Gulf that I describe in in the Tom Dispatch article and that I also discuss in in Base Nation mm. um, uh, is a phenomenon of the of the past 30 uh, 30 plus years that that's been particularly important because it's it's made it all too easy to to go to war in the Middle East.
0: Well, I mean, when you talk about before World War, uh, before, let's say, even before Pearl Harbor, even the day before Pearl Harbor, uh, American, uh, the isolationist uh, movement in the United States and no foreign entanglements and everything was a a fact of life. I mean, there was a tremendous uh, Roosevelt... uh, could do all he wanted. He can yell and scream and he could uh, convince people and we could see what was happening in England and with the uh, Germans and the Japanese, which was a clash of two empires, the American and the Japanese empire. But uh, there was tremendous amount of isolation. After World War II, uh, a lot of people say that we learned a lesson, you know, that when, you, um, when you're uh, presented with some very large uh, aggressive force, it's better to be prepared then unprepared a lot of people were saying that we were unprepared during world war ii and this is a lesson we've always learned you know that we shouldn't be unprepared and then of course after world war ii was the soviet empire and i don't know what you can't call the soviet empire anymore but the russians are getting pretty aggressive again some of these questions may be devil's advocate but the the russians are getting fairly aggressive i mean uh, it's really i was surprised to see them show up in the middle east you know
1: well, uh, so several complicated questions there. Yeah. Uh, the, the what I describe in in the book is that that the United States, in some ways, has has been a, a base nation for all of its history, or at least the the roots of the base nation actually do go back before World War II. The United States, of course, expanded across North America with the help of extraterritorial bases. It was a series of army forts that allowed uh, the thirteen states to conquer the the continent, mm-hmm. uh, and then. You know, as the 19th century progressed, uh, the United States began to accumulate small numbers of of bases outside the continent, um, uh, sort of culminating in 1898 with the seizure of Guam and Puerto Rico, and bases in in both as well as Guantanamo Bay and and the Philippines, um, and you see uh, the the collection of a, a few more uh, extraterritorial overseas bases. In the early 20th century, and and actually before Pearl Harbor, FDR, of course, signs the destroyers for bases deal, which gives the United States 99-year access to a series of bases in British colonies uh, in exchange for World War uh, I-era naval vessels. Um, I guess
0: Hawaii Hawaii itself was a colonial uh, outpost of the United States, right?
1: That's absolutely right. It was what was not formally part of the United States uh, as of World War II, um, but was an important uh, base site um, since uh, the United States annexed it at the end of the 19th century. Um, so, but, but then during World War II, you do see something quantitatively and qualitatively different um, once the United States gets into the war. The collection of bases grows exponentially the The military basically builds as many bases as possible as quickly as possible in as many places as possible and creates the largest collection of overseas bases that of any empire people or nation in in world history mm-hmm. um, and and what happened after the war um, and I think what you described of the the lessons that were said to be learned with with the war um, is exactly right that that military leaders and others said we have to maintain these bases overseas. Uh, we can't make the mistake we made at the end of World War One. Um, but of course, these bases uh, were effectively encircling the Soviet Union, and that was the, the strategy—to to keep bases mm. as close as possible to the new enemy. Uh, and and in part, the problem is that the bases helped were something of a self-fulfilling. Prophecy. They helped ensure that a Cold War would develop, um, and encourage the Soviet Union to arm itself against uh, any possible, any, any uh, against a very real U.S. threat with with U.S. bases near its borders. Uh, well, but, it,
0: that's, but that's where. Uh, sorry. Um, but that's where you would get into an argument with some people who, um, I mean, if you just take the Soviet Union by itself, let's say there was no United States of America and there was just the Soviet Union fighting and then the British and the French. But the, the, the United States, let's say, had stayed out of World War II. I'm just a fantasy here. The Soviets are, were, and now the Russians are, but the Soviets were in those days extremely aggressive. I mean, they, were, they, they had their own empire themselves, and they would have expanded possibly as far as they could go, wouldn't they?
1: I'm not an expert on on Russian history or Soviet history but I am not sure that's the the case mm-hmm. uh, you know they they I think my my understanding is you know they they made a uh, an alliance with Hitler specifically to well to i, I, I suppose to expand in in into Poland yeah. in part but but also to uh to protect themselves against a a German or Nazi threat um but yeah, I I I I think it's clear that the threat that has been was described of this that the Soviet Union posed during the Cold War was consistently overblown. Mm. That the the idea that the Soviets had, you know, were were, were a greater military power than the United States, or um, that their their missile collection was, exceeded the power of the United States, um, was always uh, uh, the
0: missile exaggerated. gap. The gap, yeah, yeah.
1: was exaggerated, um, and, and was exaggerated. Uh, t- toward the end of, of building up U.S. Uh, military power, m- missile cl- uh, missile defense uh, arsenal, and the like. Um, well, there's And no- I, I think I think something similar, unfortunately, is going on now with some people seeing it in, as being to their advantage to uh, trumpet the the threat of, of that Russia no. poses. Russia actually, as the Soviets before them, had a base in Syria. Uh, going back uh, to the 1970s. So th- their presence in the region is not entirely new. Mm-hmm. What, what's new is is their involvement in the, the war in Syria, which, of course, the U.S. has been involved in f- in a variety of ways uh, for years now. So in other words, it's um, a
0: matter of uh, proportion. I mean, just because they display a little bit of what we've been displaying a lot of for a long time, that's alarming, Right.
1: Well, uh, uh, yes. I mean, I think it should be alarming that that any uh, nation is. Well, people is inter- I'm sorry,
0: people interpret it as alarming just because they they're intruding a little bit into our empire. There, right?
1: exactly, exactly. So now the Russia has uh, two, maybe three bases in in Syria. The United States has has bases in every Persian Gulf nation except Iran and Yemen. Um, has you know more more. Bases in in Bahrain or one of the Emirates alone than, than Russia has in the entire region. Um, so it, it, it's really to, to call Russia a great threat because it's built in second base, maybe a third base. or some talk of in in Syria is, is um, I think not not useful. And 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 we need to remember that the United States is the United States surrounds Russia now increasingly close in in Central and Eastern Europe um, as well as parts of Asia that um, also provide uh, surrounding presence um, mm-hmm. that, that's been, been there since the early days of the Cold War. And I think it's, it's worth thinking about, you know, what, what was the most dangerous moment of the Cold War? It's when the Soviet Union built a missile base in, in, in Cuba, right. um, you know, 90 miles from, from Miami. Um, and that, you know, brought us closer to nuclear war than, than uh, ever was the case uh, during, the, during the Cold War. Um, and meanwhile, the United States has, has surrounded uh, the Soviet Union and now Russia with with bases extraordinarily close to its borders for for decades. Uh, uh,
0: let's let's um, <clears throat> well, let me move on to one of the most important points in your um, in your article um, is that uh, uh, that the United States bases in the Middle East are built for our own purposes, obviously, um, but they are built in places which cause The very kind of, according to your article, uh, provoke at least the very kind of terrorism that uh, that we say that the bases are there to prevent. And uh, one of the reasons is because we uh, our bases uh, were built uh, in many places where there were brutal dictatorships, and not such uh, and not so long ago, not so long in the past. And you list some of them here.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, and I wouldn't wouldn't say that that our bases cause terrorism certainly not on their own yeah, that's but, a little, but I think yeah. I think the word provoke is 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 uh, more more accurate that that there's evidence that that shows that the presence of US bases and and troops in the Middle East in particular um, has increased al-Qaeda recruitment that you know, we need only remember Osama bin Laden's professed motivation for the 9/11 attacks one of the central uh, points with with the presence of of u.s. troops and bases in the muslim holy lands um but i i think you're you're exactly right that that so often again in the middle east but not only in the middle east the u.s. bases have have frequently been in undemocratic countries and and de facto help prop up undemocratic rulers and and provide legitimacy to often repressive and, and violent regimes like that in Bahrain, um, Saudi Arabia. Again, every, every country in the Middle East except uh, Israel, where there are secret bases. Um, but but all the other countries are undemocratic, and, and we have been supporting these these rulers, and, and that has often put us on the wrong side of democracy movements. So these bases, which for a long time were trumpeted as, as helping to spread democracy, Uh, Actually, have have had the opposite effect in in many parts of the world, where they've they've uh, made pro democracy movements uh, much more difficult to to um, it's made made it much more difficult for pro democracy movements to flourish.
0: Uh, If you just tune in, uh, we are uh, talking to David Vine, who is an associate professor of anthropology at American University in Washington D.C., and he has a new book out uh, called Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. And this list here is really quite extraordinary. I mean, you go through everything, uh, secret bases in Israel, as you mentioned, um, install- four installations in Egypt, one in Jordan, Turkey, 17 bases, Bulgaria, Romania, Kosovo, and um, these things are basically <laughs> talk about basically. These things are unknown essentially to the American public. It's it's basically uh, secret, or the American public is not paying attention. I mean, there's even one uh, you mentioned in um, Djibouti called Camp. Is it Lemagnier?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Camp Lemagnier, and which is uh, upwards of you say of four thousand troops on a six hundred acre base, and uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Burkina Faso, Senegal, Spain, Italy. It's extraordinary. Um, and why do these people, why do these places all have U.S. bases? Is it because for their own protection of their own governments? Uh, are they afraid of terrorism? Are they afraid of their neighbors? Are they making money from it? Why are these bases all allowed?
1: It's a great and complicated question, and, and part of what I, I try to answer in, in Base Nation, the bases are in so many countries uh, for a complicated set of reasons, um, partly because the United States has had the power to to maintain them and the, and the financial strength to to maintain them for for so many decades now, basically entrenching this huge collection of bases during World War II, and then when the when the war ended, closing a, a fair number, um, but but keeping this very large network of bases overseas uh, deeply entrenched and it stayed so through the Cold War and. Despite the disappearance of the the enemy, the Soviet Union, uh, at the end of the Cold War, uh, this huge base collection remained again in place uh, and, and has been a major source of power and, and lever of power, tool of power, um, not just militarily, but, but politically and economically for the United States. And I think, as, as you point out, it's largely invisible to most people in the United States, most U.S. citizens, except those in the military and uh, family members, uh, who often know, know all too well that their bases overseas because they're separated from from their family members when military personnel are deployed abroad mm-hmm. but the question of why um countries accept the bases is is a complicated question many of the bases, well I, sh- of course- I should
0: I should mention we have um, probably about uh 8 or so minutes, and it's always like this. There's never quite enough time. But but go ahead. I mean,
1: sure. Well, real quickly, um, you know, many of them are bases of occupation. They're they're bases that that were uh, established at the end of World War II in Germany and and Japan and Italy. Um, and over time, the, the they they I think legitimately shifted from bases of occupation to to bases that that many or most people in those countries saw as providing a defensive presence against the Soviet Union, in particular. Um, but that there are absolutely economic reasons why why the bases remain in place. Uh, uh, The economics are complicated and not always as positive as as one might think, but some people make a lot of money on these bases, both uh, U.S. corporations, private military contractors and uh, local corporations, businesses, people who work on the the bases. Um, But also, once a base is established, we see a clear pattern that they become very difficult to close. Mm-hmm. Uh, they become uh, a source of power for the United States where the U.S. can can threaten to close a base if it doesn't get its way in a negotiation over an economic trade deal, another economic arrangement, um, because uh, local government knows that it would get a lot of criticism and heat if the United States pulled out because some people are very dependent on that base for jobs or income of one sort or another. So and I think there's also an ideological dimension that people have come to assume that the bases provide security. Uh, people mm-hmm. in the U.S. And, and people abroad, although I think people abroad are, have been questioning that increasingly. Um, but basically that assumption has been unquestioned, and people who make the claim that bases make us more secure or make the world more secure basically have done so uh, without providing any evidence to support the claim. And that's mm-hmm. part of what... what base nation does it says wait a second prove that um, and uh, while uh, there is abundant evidence that, that bases are quite harmful to people around the world and people in the United States uh, in the U.S. beginning with the one hundred and fifty billion dollar price tag that these it uh, uh, costs to maintain bases and troops so yeah, That's
0: feet. that's the next thing I wanted to uh, <clears throat> to get to is that uh, these uh, this new Pentagon strategy the New York Times. Which often seems to uh, have uh, actually a decades-long history of lapping up whatever the Pentagon decides to feed it. Um, They um, they mentioned that there was you know it was in the in the millions the millions of dollars, which is a joke even if you understand a little bit of American history. But uh, in the few minutes we have left, maybe you could talk about. And here's a country where the water is poisoned in one city, where bridges are falling into rivers. Uh, where, uh, where there's vast unemployment, where people are living in poverty more and more all the time, where there's less social services, there's less schools, there's less hospitals. But uh, the Pentagon is spending a tremendous amount of money uh, on building new bases and maintaining these bases. Maybe you could talk about that for a couple of minutes.
1: That's right, uh, and, and I think you're you're absolutely right to point out, you know, what's going on in Flint and around our country. Uh, the, while the United States has built up and maintained this very robust infrastructure of bases overseas, complete with, in many cases, terrific schools, terrific hospitals, uh, shopping centers, fast food, uh, recreational facilities, you should see, you know, most people don't know what the base at Guantanamo looks like. They have an image of the, the prison, but m- the vast majority of the base Looks like a small american town and then uh or sort of idealized suburbia Hmm. um and with tremendous facilities that uh you know people in flint would only dream of in fact they have their own water supply at at guantanamo uh, and flint would love that at this point a safe one that is Hmm. um so we've been spending tens of billions hundreds of billions over you know over decades um to maintain these bases and, and troops overseas uh, while our uh, physical infrastructure, our, our health, our uh, educational infrastructures have, have become increasingly decrepit. Um, and uh, part of what I argue in Base Nation is that we need to think about security in, in, in new ways. And, and in fact, while we think we've been making ourselves more secure by building and maintaining bases, we've been undermining our security in, in very direct ways by not spending money on, on, uh, on, on the infrastructures at home. Uh, and I, I point to this in telling the story of Private Russell Madden, who is a, a private in the Army who joined the Army for one reason, because his son uh, didn't have health insurance and his son was born with cystic fibrosis. Hmm. He joined the Army and went off to Afghanistan and, and was killed there son now doesn't have a father, um, simply because he, as his mother pointed out actually in a letter to President Obama, because his father lived in a country where he couldn't get sufficient health care and couldn't get a, a job to, to pay for health care. Um, uh, so I, I think that, that you know, helps illustrate the choices we've made and, and, and for me, it indicates the, the shift that needs to take place in, in protecting our security in, in, in far better and smarter ways.
0: Uh, Last point here uh, before we do have to end in a couple of minutes. Um, You're saying that, of course, having these bases all over the world uh, makes it a lot easier for the United States to automatically launch invasions. And since Congress, i.e., the representatives of the people of the United States, uh, don't have any say in the president's personal army and what he does all over the world with it, it uh, It's just a question of a few phone calls, and, um, you know, we can invade any place, any time. It makes it too easy, that's what you're saying.
1: That's absolutely right, and that's, again, an, another way that that this system of bases has, has made us more secure and has harmed us in the United States. It's helped us get involved in in not only needless wars, of course, but disastrous wars that have wreaked such harm in, in the Middle East, but that have... You know, killed so many members of the military, damaged the lives of, of family members, uh, damaged so many even even those you know, vets who come back home and suffer the long lasting effects of war, uh, all because we've gotten in wars with the help of this infrastructure of bases that, that is, has made it too easy and made war a, a, all too easy uh, option in among foreign policy. Uh, options uh, when we could be and I, I think very much should be and base nation makes this argument that we need to not retreat into some sort of isolationist shell but need to first carefully examine every single base overseas and whether it's absolutely necessary mm-hmm. and second as we close unnecessary bases uh, build up our our diplomatic and political presence overseas to engage with other nations and other peoples in fundamentally different ways, more productive ways and, and less violent uh, ways.
0: If uh, we're just about out of time, uh, we've been speaking to David Vine, and he is the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. And how can people find out? What? Uh, where would they go to find out more about the book and about you?
1: Yeah, they can go to basenation.us. It's basenation, one word, dot U-S, um, which has information about the book. It actually has a series of maps that you see in the book, um, links to, to articles and more information about me. I also have a, a separate website, davidvine.net, davidvine.net, with articles and uh, links. And on both sites, you can find more information uh, to learn about to learn more about bases and both the whole network of the 800 bases overseas and individual bases. So I encourage folks to check it out.
0: Okay. Thank you very much for coming on and let us know about this. I mean, if it wasn't for people who were doing what you're doing, um, <clears throat> this would just go on and on forever with nobody knowing about it. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Mike. really appreciate it.
0: Okay. We're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back with our second guest.
2: I'm not sure.
0: And this is Mike Fader, Uh, we have a guest with us today, Rick Shankman, uh, and he is the founder of the uh, History News Network, a website that features leading historians' perspectives on current events, and um, he's often seen on Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. He has uh, written uh, several books, uh, but his let's uh, we. It's a complicated uh, issue he's talking about here today, and it was another article in Tom Dispatch. Um, and his new book is called "Political Animals: How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics," as we can see just by looking at what goes on in the uh, Iowa caucus and the campaign. Uh, and in fact, the article in Tom Dispatch. Um, is entitled, Ted Cruz's Stone Age Brain and Yours, Why Collateral Damage Elicits So Little Sympathy Among Americans. And um, welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, all right. Now, you, you start off by mentioning uh, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, and you say that he had suggested, of course, people read about this, that the United States begin carpet bombing the Islamic State forces in Syria. And uh, there was a terrible reaction to that uh, from other candidates and from uh, journalists. And um, Wolf Blitzer uh, pointed out to Cruz that there would be a lot of civilian casualties. And... um, uh, Cruz went on to say as well, you know, in a sort of semi-articulate way, it's like he didn't quite know what a carpet bombing was. He said, uh, you would carpet, carpet bomb ISIS where ISIS is, not a city, but the location of the troops. You use air power directed, and you have embedded special forces to to direction, quote, the air power, but the object isn't to level a city. The object is to kill the ISIS terrorists, and uh, uh, you say, PolitiFact dryly noted that Cruz apparently didn't understand what the process of carpet or saturation bombing entails. By definition, it means bombing a wide area regardless of the human cost or whoever is there. And uh, then you uh, – then what happened is, of course, naturally, that saying such an insane, violent, uh, insensitive thing, my words, that uh, his um, – and the media calling him on it, that he should uh, drop in the polls and people should sober up and see how uh, extreme he is, right?
3: Exactly. Except the the reverse happened. Uh, His poll numbers immediately started going up. So what does that suggest? To me, it suggests that people are not thinking about the potential victims of his carpet bombing approach. They are just thinking about rah-rah, America, America, and uh, this is a wonderful way for us to finally defeat ISIS, and we're going to go in there, we're going to be tough. Mm -hmm. And even Cruz, he he, uh, doubled down on his uh, claim that he was going to carpet bomb folks. He wouldn't back down. And even that is something that the American people seem to like a lot. So uh, it didn't hurt him at all, this controversy.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And you're saying that, uh, by and large, Americans don't think or care much about the real-world consequences of the unleashing of American air power or that of our allies. When you say Americans, you mean who? Most Americans? I mean, obviously, there are some Americans who understand how awful this is, right?
3: Well, I think that most Americans, if sat down and having a thoughtful discussion, um, would start to think about these uh, uh, potential victims of a mass bombing uh, attack as uh, actual human beings. But our automatic reactions, and this is what I'm talking about in Political Animals, our automatic reactions to political subjects in the news is to go with something that just makes us feel good at that particular moment. So it makes us feel good to think that, yeah, we're going to solve this problem and we're just going to bomb these people back into the Stone Age and that's going to be that. That makes us feel good. Mm -hmm. And why is that? It makes us feel good because we're not thinking about those people as human beings. We are just thinking about them as an abstraction. They're a problem that we need to solve for our own needs. And that has to do with our Stone Age brain. And that's what the book is about. The brain was designed to meet the problems that hunter-gatherers face during the two-and-a-half-million-year period that we lived uh, during the Stone Age. It wasn't designed to help us meet the problems of 21st-century human beings in a multicultural, multipolar world. Mm -hmm. So when we are talking about people living in a faraway place, where we don't know their language, we don't understand their culture, we can't even find their country on a map.
0: Then who cares? We just treat
3: them as abstractions. And that's because the human brain was really only designed to deal with about 150 people in our immediate vicinity. Mm -hmm. So our whole nervous system and the way our brain is designed uh, doesn't lend us to thinking thoughtfully when we're thinking automatically about people in these faraway lands, and that's that's really what the book is about. Is uh, our, when we go on instinct in politics, we almost always go wrong. Now,
0: now, isn't this um, also uh, not just an American phenomenon, but it couldn't couldn't be said to be like a feature of uh, of modern warfare, especially twentieth century and twenty first century warfare, where the technology has made it even more possible than it ever was before to uh, destroy people or for a country, uh, a country's military forces, to destroy people who are very, very far away and for uh, nobody to, uh, to really even know it's happening or to care much and to confuse it with maybe a movie they watched on television. In other words, um, does it make any difference that once upon a time people had to get together? For instance, in, in, in the Civil War, uh, a lot of the battles were fought, you know, like 30 yards apart. You know, people people destroying each other. There were, but the civilian this idea of um, civilian populations being destroyed at a distance, or armies being destroyed at a great distance, is that a new thing in the world? And it's it's not just an American phenomenon, is it?
3: Well, that's why I keep talking about this is a human being problem. Uh-huh. This is not a specifically American problem. This is a human being problem. It wasn't American brains that were being formed back in the Stone Age, it was the human being's brain that was being formed back there. The difference, of course, is that because we are the world's superpower, what we do has real consequences for people all over the world. So mm-hmm. it's very, very important that we get politics right, because when we get politics wrong, other people die. So that's something that um, I think we just have to always keep in mind when we, when we possess this in- incredible power at our fingertips. We have to be very, very careful in how we exercise it. it and this is, a modern, this is a modern problem. You're absolutely right about it. It's a modern problem because of modern technology that we can uh, attack populations that are thousands and tens of thousands of miles away.
0: You know, this is, I can see how, uh, and you're writing a lot about the science and the studies in here, uh, which are really revealing and very um, probative of your case, um, but, you know, if you just examine your own, your own feelings and your own thoughts, uh, I live in New York City, and uh, uh, often people hear a fire engine, you know, going by, like, I don't know, it seems like every 20 minutes up where I live. It's a crowded part of Manhattan. And um, there's this feeling that once the fire – you hear the fire engine and you're alarmed. Let's say if you're walking on the street and you're just like a block away from your building. But if it passes by and starts to fade into the distance, there's a sense of relief you know what i mean uh, uh, or um it's all it all seems to be like you mentioned it's a question of distance and the amount of um uh the ability of our brains to be concerned about uh how many people at a certain you know a certain number of people at a certain time it's almost a a kind of cave like mentality or tribal mentality about it so if something happens if i read in the newspaper for instance that some awful murder happened in um brooklyn uh, I don't know if it sounds awful to say this, but it means, it means less to me than if a murder happened two blocks away from where I lived. You know what I mean?
3: This is exactly what I'm talking about in the book, and it's to try to make us more aware of our automatic reactions that I wrote the book. Hmm. Uh, because it doesn't come naturally to start thinking about and questioning your instinctive reactions. Donald Trump's whole campaign is based on people having instinctive reactions. He's pushing two buttons, the anger button and the fear button. And there's a lot of anger out there about the establishment, and there's a lot of fear of Muslim terrorists and Mexican immigrants. And he's just pushing those buttons really, really hard. And people are having these automatic reactions that swamp their higher cognitive reasoning powers. And it makes sense. For instance, let's take a look at... um, uh, exactly what Trump is doing when he's talking about a Muslim terrorists or Mexican immigrants. Mm-hmm. He's activating a fear module in the brain, but it's more than just this kind of generalized fear. It's a very specific fear, and it's what social scientists like to refer to as the fire alarm bias. When you hear a fire alarm, that fire alarm you were talking about, you want it set to highly sensitive, Because what you never want to do is miss a fire alarm. Right. You want to make sure that if there is a fire, you hear the the fire alarm goes off and you hear it so you can get the hell out of there. And that is what Trump is doing with Muslim immigrants and with Mexican immigrants. He is saying, hey folks, the fire alarm is going off, don't miss it. Mm -hmm. And that something that that is how all human beings anywhere in the world whether you're living in China or Africa or the United States or down in Latin America um, we're all born with the same brain with that same bias it's that fire alarm bias we don't want to miss a fire alarm Mm -hmm. if you get a false fire alarm which a lot of what Donald Trump is talking about he's really uh, ringing false fire alarms it doesn't matter to the human brain, the human brain just says, oh, so I overreacted to something, fine, I'll go back into my office, get off the sidewalk, and go back to go back to work. Mm-hmm. A false fire alarm can't lead to your death, but a real fire alarm that's missed, wow, that's a real problem. And he's that's telling what, people that. And that's what he's doing, and that is exactly what he's doing. And that's, that's why he's having such a strong reaction from the American people. It's one of the reasons he's having such a strong reaction from the American people because he's going past all of their higher order cognitive thinking and he is drilling right down into the middle of their brains where uh, they're having this instinctive, almost animal reaction.
0: There's uh, obviously nothing new about that in the world either. I mean, uh, rabble rousing, charismatic politicians, uh, usually during times of chaos and poverty and fear in any country, uh, do exactly the same thing. And, and certainly, um, you know, people criticize you for putting two people in the same sentence who maybe, you know, for, who don't belong in the same sentence. However, now that I've said that, you get a guy like Hitler you know who was appealing to uh, in fact, if you examine the original people he was appealing to, uh, and even uh, a couple of years after him when he got more successful, to a certain group of people who um, seemed to be more predisposed uh, to to react in this way, in other words, he was pressing these buttons too, he skipped right past any kind of um, logical or ideological anything he just went straight for people's stone age brains the way you would say it right
3: um yes and what um we need to understand is that culture can override our instincts and that's why we're not still living as cavemen because culture wonderfully can help us uh improve our reactions to events happening around us so that we uh, arrive at a genuine understanding of what's happening and don't just go off half-cocked in response to uh, uh, events that trigger uh, fear responses. But uh, what um, Trump is doing is he is mainly appealing to what are called low information voters. So these are voters who don't know an awful lot. Uh, They don't pay too much attention to politics, but they are hearing his speeches
0: or to fact or to facts perhaps right I mean to actual yeah, facts and,
3: yeah. and 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 these are what social scientists like to refer to as uh, perceptual salience, in other words, they are responding to things that make some immediate sense to them and that was, is within their purview. they can't respond to things that they don't know, so because they are low-information voters, they're not responding to the larger context that, say, the readers of the New York Times are responding to when they hear that uh, Muslim terrorists in some foreign country have uh, uh, blown up a tavern and, and, and killed a bunch of people. They can't put it into a larger context because they don't know the context.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And Trump is counting on people not having... Uh, that larger understanding, and he is counting on them having just a visceral, emotional reaction. That's why he is, by definition, a demagogue. He ex- he's exploiting our emotions in a demagogic way by appealing to people's fears.
0: Well, there's one. Now, all
3: politicians, all, all politicians are, um, try to trigger uh, emotional responses. Right. You can't get elected the, the, the... president of the United States without an emotional response. But if you're going after the fear response, mm-hmm. you are trying to get voters to bypass their higher order cognitive thinking and just respond in a purely emotional way. And that's dangerous.
0: Well, certainly that's what somebody like Father Coughlin did back in the 30s. And then you get McCarthyism in the 50s. It's always the same kind of situation, right? And usually the same kind of people reacting, uh, although people should know better. But also now we have a certain very large media organization in this country um, electronic media organization, which seems to appeal directly to that Stone Age brain uh, en masse. You know, tens of millions of people are sort of softened up by this and prepared for this already, right?
3: Well, I think that uh, Fox is having some regrets about some of the people that they have given national platforms to because uh, they see they've unleashed this Frankenstein monster known as Donald Trump and uh it's very dangerous for the country for the future of our democracy and uh i i i'm living in fear of what's going to happen this year it's very possible that yeah. donald trump can win the gop nomination and uh or, god help us if we have one more terrorist attack in this country he could get elected president
0: that's true that's true um <clears throat> and um who knows what would happen then? I mean, I I don't have the slightest idea. The, the days are long gone where people were just thinking he was being a perverse narcissist. There's more to it than even he understands. There's more to his movement than even he understands. Um, now, one thing you mentioned in this uh, really fascinating article, and once again, the article is in Tom Dispatch. It's a great place to go for uh, for uh, political and other uh, articles, Tom Dispatch, and it's called Ted Cruz's Stone Age Brain and Yours, Why Collateral Damage Elicits So Little Empathy Among Americans. Uh, And our guest is Rick Schenkman, who wrote the article and is also uh, the author of a new book called Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Uh, You mentioned, of course, that uh, and this pattern you could see in many different places in the world, different times, if you dehumanize a certain group of people, if you dehumanize them in various different ways, it's easier to dispense with them as human beings, but even to literally dispense with them, or do anything you want to them, right?
3: Exactly. This is what um, uh, Adolf Hitler was doing in the 1930s with Jews. He was, uh, first of all, of course, he was scapegoating them for all the problems that Germany faced after World War I's loss to the Allies. But uh, in addition to that, he was dehumanizing them so that people could take uh, horrendous uh, actions against the Jews. If a human being comes to you and seems like a real human being, it's very hard for you to physically uh, kill that person. There is a, the way our human brain works. Uh, unless we're caught up in, in the moment where we're feeling very vengeful, uh, it's very, very difficult to kill a human being who's standing right in front of you. So the only way you can really get millions of people to want to kill a bunch of other people is by dehumanizing those people. And that's, that's what Hitler was doing. And that's what we wind up doing whenever we have our enemies we immediately stop thinking about them as human beings. And I cite studies in in political animals about how our brain literally uh, stops digesting information about uh, uh, marginalized people, uh, like the homeless, Mm -hmm. and stops thinking of them as human beings. So there's a part of our brain called the MPSC, which is the medial prefrontal cortex, which is where we register our empathetic uh, feelings for other human beings when they're in trouble. We're all born with this kind of natural, except for psychopaths, we're we're almost all of us born with this uh, natural empathy toward another human being who we see in pain. But if you can convince people that this other human being isn't really a human being and by dehumanizing them, uh, turn them into an abstraction, then... You can ignore their pain when they put the uh they they put subjects in an experiment into an mri machine and they would show them pictures of homeless people Mm -hmm. and the and identify them as these are homeless people the part of the uh brain this mpfc that normally would activate when you see somebody in trouble wouldn't activate Hmm. and that because our brain is saying, don't care about this person, they're not really human. And that's what politicians are doing whenever they target uh, uh, Muslim immigrants or Mexican immigrants They're trying to dehumanize them, turn them into members of this mass despised group of others. The other. Well, this is uh, this and is uh, not it's very dangerous.
0: <clears throat> this is also not new in the world and not new in America. I mean, to call people, you know, the the American Indians were called savages. Uh, the word was in. For the U.S. forces over in Vietnam, they were all gooks. Um, some of the uh, illustrations uh, of Koreans and of uh, of the Japanese uh, made them look like kind of uh, mongrel dogs or monsters or something like that. And the Nazis had all these illustrations, uh, illustrations of the Jews as uh, devils, you know, with uh, almost look like they had talons and tails and... Uh, so this is, what people, this is what people do all the time. Also, you mentioned in here that uh, there's all kinds of um, categories. Like, for instance, if we hear somebody, you say, when we hear somebody speaking a foreign language, we instinctively discount their humanity. I mean, it's uh, extraordinary, this kind of thing. And so it's basically we, we are all... So do we all have to strive to rise above our natural instinctive Stone Age brain? Is that that something that we need to do, that we should be doing, is to strive to rise above it all the time?
3: What I'm arguing in political animals is that we have to second-guess our instinctive responses in politics. Mm -hmm. In our personal lives, we can usually count on our instincts to help us. You are walking along the sidewalk, and uh, suddenly somebody falls. Your instinctive reaction is to help them up. In politics, you can't count on your instinctive reactions being the right reactions because the problems that were posed that we face in politics aren't the same ones we face in our personal lives because in our personal lives we're facing problems involving people who are in our immediate vicinity and our brain is designed to deal with people in our immediate vicinity our brains aren't designed to deal with people who are living millions of miles away or maybe thousands of miles away and that's the challenge that we face so what i am suggesting is that we can't rely on our natural empathy or our natural instinctive abilities in everyday life when it comes to politics and we have to second guess ourselves
0: well in some cases too uh... that
3: doesn't come naturally that's very that's that's a real challenge you have to really train yourself to second guess yourself
0: well, that's not something, obviously, that certain politicians want to appeal to, um, but you say there is... No, they, don't
3: want, they, they want to manipulate us, so they want to uh, have us uh, uh, having these uh, instinctive uh, reactions. If mm-hmm. you go with your instinctive reactions, and they can manipulate you. If you are subjecting those instinctive reactions to higher-order cognitive reflection, then the politician loses the ability to manipulate you emotionally.
0: You say finally that since we, but we are all equipped with this uh, with this brain, and uh, we have to do what you're suggesting we do and um, um, but the one thing you do you do sort of like Pandora's box or everything uh, where everything you know rushes out into the world and it's awful, but you you say there's one thing left and that's hope and what is the hope for people
3: well I have uh, the last um, uh, quarter of the book is uh, all about reasons why I'm an optimist despite the fact that We've just talked about all these things that sound fairly uh, pessimistic mm-hmm. um so I'll just focus on one um, anxiety oh let, you know what let, i'm being... sorry
0: let not, let me uh yeah you know, i'm I hate to do this because uh, such a subject that's important, but we only have like about a minute and a half or two minutes so, okay. so I apologize so.
3: okay yeah. um every human being is born with anxiety now that's an emotion and anxiety actually plays a very positive role when there is a mismatch between our belief and the way the real world works. Let's say there's a gap between our ideological assumptions about the way the world works and the way it actually works. We get anxious. And when that anxiety gets sufficiently high, that the burden of hanging on to our old belief becomes greater than the burden of changing our belief, then we suddenly become open to change. That's a very optimistic scientific finding. And it's how all human beings' uh, brains work, so I, I was really encouraged by that.
0: Uh, it's important also that people uh, tell stories, in other words, that people who see these things and know about these things tell us stories that makes people more human, correct?
3: Exactly. And we have brains that are very responsive to stories, and we tell stories. Stories help us understand A plus B equals C, and all human beings have this faculty. So when we tell stories, we can humanize other human beings, and then that activates our empathic uh, response.
0: Okay, uh, Rick Schenkman, the book is Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show.
3: Uh, thanks, Mike, and I'm glad you're not uh, snowbound like you were last week. No,
0: no, no. No, it's all melted away, but we'll see. Uh, okay, great. thank you. All right. Okay, thank that's it. Take care. Bye. That's it for this week. Uh, this is Mike Fader with The Turning Point. I will see you next week.
4: I sing you a Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience, call him a Nazi, he won't even frown, Nazi schmazi says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical, say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town, who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero, once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun.